on September 30th, the next to last day of the season, and needing just one more home run, he faced Tom Zachary of the Washington Senators. The first Zachary offering was a fast one which sailed over for a call strike. The next was high. The babe took a vicious swing at the third pitch ball and the bat connected with a crash that was audible in all parts of the stand. While the crowd cheered and the Yankee players roared their greeting, the babe made his triumphant, almost regal tour of the paths. And when he embedded his spikes in the rubber disc to officially Homer 60, Cats were tossed in the air, papers were torn up and tossed liberally, and the spirit of celebration permeated the place. podcast room and pressing the buttons and producing the podcaster dad today. Paul, you want to get on your microphone? Say hello to everybody. Okay. All right. Say hello, sportscasters. Podcasters. Yeah, it is season eight, episode 16, 17, something like that of the sportscasters. Paula, what do you want to tell the people? Tell them about the A-team. Who's in the A-team? Animal. Hannibal. Who else? Face Man. Face Man. Who else? And Mr. T. Mr. T. And who else? Who's the crazy fool? Murdoch. Murdoch. Ladies and gentlemen, the only two-and-a-half-year-old in the United States who knows all four members of the A-team is my sweet little heart, Paula. Paula, are you and Daddy two hearts? Yeah? Can you sing two hearts for the people? Two hearts. One of That's my girl. Do you love daddy? Look at this. What is that? Pearl Jam? Pearl Jam. Ooh. Pearl Jam's awesome, huh? Do you, do you play hockey? Who gave you a hockey puck? Uncle Kenny. Uncle Kenny Agostino gave you a hockey puck? <laughs> were you excited? Yeah. All right. Well, we're off to a sick start. My girl Paula's on the pod. She's producing for me. Yeah, she's pressing the buttons. She's moving the sliders up and down. She might take us on the air, off the air, but we got a great show for you today. Uh, the first lady of the sportscasters, Jane Levy, is going to be on the show today uh, to pro- promote her book, The Big Fella. And I just got turned down mid-sentence by my producer. Uh-huh. She didn't like where I was going with that, so she shut me right down. 
Okay, you gotta stop. You gotta stop turning daddies off. Leave that one on, okay? You can press this one and this one. Okay. Got to help her here today, people. Jane Levy is on the podcast today. The first, the first lady of the Sportscasters uh, podcast is on the air today. And also, uh, Josh Levine from Slate is on the podcast today as well. So we got a great show for you today. Uh, Josh and Jane will be on the show. We're going to do Jane first. So I'm going to do an intro here as best I can with Paula pressing buttons and sliding things. And uh, also, after the intro, we will bring Jane in. Uh, Then we're going to update the book club, which has had a crazy week. (laughs) Lots to talk about in the book club update. And then after we do the book club update, we'll talk to Josh from Slate. And then after that, I will be back with one last thing, maybe some more plugs, and then we'll get out of here. All right. Bunch of business to get to. First of all, last night on the Sportscasters feed, I posted the 26th ever episode and the first this year of the Lonely End of the Rink podcast, a hockey podcast that I do with Adrian Dater. Now, in the past, it had its own feed, but those things cost money. And uh, I already have a feed on SoundCloud that's unlimited. So any podcast that I do now is just going to be housed on my on my Sportscasters feed. SoundCloud does allow you to switch the logos for each podcast. For some reason, the Lonely End of the Rink logo didn't show up on iTunes. I'm not sure why. Uh, I'm trying to work on that. But if you follow us on our SoundCloud link, which is soundcloud.com slash sports-casters, uh, you will see the different logos. So when I do post the Lonely End of the Ring podcast, it'll be there. Adrian and I are planning on maybe doing about two a month. That's kind of our goal. So we're going to try to do that, do two of those a month, and they'll appear right on the Sportscasters feed. So if you subscribe to the Sportscasters uh, or if you uh, follow our SoundCloud, you'll get, you'll get it automatically. Uh, so, again, SoundCloud.com. Slash sports dash casters is where you can find uh, the feed for that. And then uh, you can subscribe to Sportscasters on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever. If you're trying to listen to the podcast somewhere and you can't find it, you can email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. For more information, uh, at sports underscore casters. My producer is just going ham on the show right now. Paula, don't push any buttons, okay? Just slide this one up and down. That's how you help. That one. Just that one, though, okay? That's how you help, Daddy. No, we can't have any buttons pushed. All right, so Lonely End of the Ring podcast. Adrian Dater and I, we talk NHL. We're back. Uh, It's good to be back. We did about an hour and 15 minutes last night. We talked about... Joe Quenville, uh, where will Coach Q end up? Uh, what do the Blackhawks do? They got a lot of money uh, held up in a bunch of different dudes. We talked about the surging Sabres. Uh, I'm probably going to do one last thing on the Sabres later. And uh, we also uh, talked about the Avalanche. And Adrian and I did this kind of crazy six-player draft. If we could add any three players in the NHL to our teams, Uh the first pick was not Connor McDavid somehow. Uh, so we did that, which was really fun. And uh, it's just a cool podcast. I love Adrian. He's a great writer. He works for BSN Denver. He's been a good friend of this show. and a, a, Someone who's truly a friend of mine uh, through doing this. Um, 
and we told the story of the uh, on the other podcast when our podcast when Adrian was on about how he jinxed me into the hospital and I didn't get to meet him in person, which is a really a bummer. And of course, not Adrian's fault, uh, but he's truly a friend, and I'm glad to be doing the lonely end of the ring podcast with him again. Also, tomorrow, Saturday, I'm going to be recording the next Adams Division podcast uh, with my friend Peter Winson from Greetings from Allentown. And that is either going to run on Thanksgiving Eve or Thanksgiving Day. I'm going to leave that up to Peter. Peter puts his podcast out on Thursdays. So I don't know if he's going to want to put two out on a Thursday or not. So we might do it Thanksgiving Eve. If you remember, in the early days of the Survivor Series, the original tradition was Thanksgiving. And then they switched the tradition to Thanksgiving Eve before, obviously, they do all their pay-per-views on Sundays now. But Peter and I are going to be ranking Survivor Series 87 to 98, which was Survivor Series Deadly Game, which was actually the anniversary of that. The 20-year anniversary of that just passed. Uh, so we're going to do uh, 12. That's 12 shows. We're going to rank 12 shows, sort of like we did with Survivor, or, excuse me, SummerSlam over the summer. Uh, that podcast runs on the Greeting from Allentown feed. So just follow my Twitter, at sports underscore casters, and I'll link to that. I'm doing that this weekend. Uh, also, I already have an interview recorded for next week's podcast uh, with Brian Curtis. And I should be recording an interview with John Feinstein on Monday. And that will be next week's show. Uh, more on that in the book club. Like I said, it's been a crazy, crazy week for the book club. Uh, with all that said, uh, I think that's all I have to plug Look, at the best way to keep all this straight is at sports underscore casters on Twitter. I'll tweet where to go, how to go, what to get, and when to get it. You can also always email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. SoundCloud is soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. And find us by searching The Sportscasters on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. All right. This is the lineup one more time. We're going to take a break in a second. We're going to come back with the great Jane Levy. After that, I'll be back. Lots of information to give you about the book club. Then we'll take another break. We'll talk to Josh Levine from Slate. And then after that, I'll be back with one last thing. Maybe a few more plugs. And we'll say goodbye. I want to thank my helper, Paula Marie Bennett, for singing on the podcast, for pushing the buttons. She's the best in the world. I love her. I'm glad she's doing this with me, and I'm sorry. Uh, if it was a little distracting in the beginning. But, you know, hey, Paula, it's her show, too. It's her show, too. All right, let's take a break. We're going to come right back with the first lady of the sportscasters, the great Jane Levy. Our first guest today... Lives in Washington, has a graduate degree from Columbia University, and is the first lady of the Sportscasters podcast. She's a legend around here and almost needs no introduction. A warm Sportscasters introduction to the great Jane Levy. Hello, Jane. How are you doing today? Welcome back to the Sportscasters. Great, Steve. Good to be with you as always. The first lady of the Sportscasters. We love having you on. Um, I was just telling you off air. You mentioned this book, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created, four years ago for the first time on this show. And you mentioned 
right away. It's a project that you've been thinking about since a trip to the Baseball Hall of Fame when your son was young. I don't remember you said 8, 10, something like that, young. Um, so it's something you've been thinking about for a long time, and it's finally here, and it's a reality, and it's a New York Times bestseller, and you've had it. It's been out for about a month, and you've been on Mike Francesa, and you've been uh, in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I kind of like sometimes catching authors at the kind of end of this cycle because I get to kind of start off with this, and that's from idea to all those hours to working, and then like you you go away for this period of time and you come out and you share this with the world. And I'm just curious how the experience has been overall this month. How how, how do you think uh, this cycle has run? Have you enjoyed it? Uh, have you had a favorite? You know, you got to be on Mike Francesa and all these cool things. Tell me about just kind of the, let's just kind of ease in with kind of the promoting it and the cycle and how you felt about it the last month or so. Uh, you know, it's there, it's a, there's a real adrenaline rush to it. Um, you know, the, the, the life of the writer, the, the writer, or at least this writer is not, um, exactly glamorous. I sit around in a pair of sweatpants and t-shirts and basically my company during those hours is my very, very cool dog and dead babe. So, um, you know, it, it, one of the things about doing this book that was very different from Mantle and Kofax was that there was not that that much on the road or even on the phone reporting. It was a lot of it was very dry reviewing of of man, other people's manuscripts of uh, documents and very small printed <laughs> faint newspaper articles. So you sort of, it, it almost exists sort of solely in your head. And then when it comes out and it's actually a tangible object that can be assessed and liked or disliked and praised or criticized by someone else, it's almost shocking. Um, it's, a, it's a relief because, you know, you, when you work on something by yourself for that long, you really don't know what, what people are going to think. Um, and sometimes you don't know what mistakes you've made, and you always make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes, um, and you know. So it's a little like I, I once killed somebody off in a mantle book and got an indignant telephone call from guy's wife saying, you know, you said he's dead, but he's sitting right here on the porch next to me. It was horrible. <laughs> I mean, it was just it was a nightmare. So far, apparently, uh, the only thing I've gotten OJ that I've been alerted to is OJ with yeah. Avis as opposed to Hertz. And when Quartz watches were created, um, and I swear to God, I read something that said it would have been created then, but of course it wasn't. Um, so uh, the it's a real rush um, that so many people seem to like it. Is you know, it's it's this is the gravy. You know, right. <laughs> if you can't like this, you can't like anything. Um, and so I've been all over the country and, you know, many of the places that he and Lou Gehrig and his, their agent, Christy Walsh, um, visited on the 1927 barnstorming tour, which is the yeah. structure of the book. Um, and so, you know, people have been very interested to hear the parts of the book that take place in the towns where they live. And um, 
so, you know, I'm sort of barnstorming in Babe Ruth's barnstorming, you know, footsteps. Let me, let me I want to, you said so much, I want to follow up on there. First, I got to ask you, because I'll forget if I don't do it now. What was it like to spend an hour with Francesa? Because, and, and, and I need to know, were you at his home studio or was he in the WFAN studio that day? So I know he's kind of working out of both. I was in the WFAN, WFAN. studio. Okay. And the thing is, Steve, he kept me on three hours with Mantle. You know, he's a real Yo, oh, guy. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. Um, um, so um, an hour with Mike, it was a breeze. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it, he was terrific. And it was, um, you know, it's it's every sports writer's dream to have an, an hour like that on the air in New York um, on pub date, which is what it was. Yeah. That, and it's, he's just such a larger than life personality. I mean, I think you know Neil Best covers him better than anyone for the um, for Newsday, and just a couple weeks ago, uh, the top five stories on Newsday's website were all WFAN related, and four of the five were Francesa related. You know, so he's such a big personality, and just to be able to spend an hour with him, I watched the whole thing. So cool. You know, my one of my favorite things about the Mike and the Mad Dog show is when they would talk about books, whether it was a sports book or one of them read, you know, a book on Woodrow Wilson or whatever. I mean, they're really great readers and they're really good at making radio about reading. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. And for anybody at this time in the world um, to give that much time and attention to a book is extraordinary. And, you know, authors such as myself are profoundly grateful for that. Did you get to talk to Chris? Um, I did his, um, I did a little uh, thing with him at MLB um, okay, yeah. last week. Cool. Um, I'm gonna have to and find I think that. I'm going to be doing a radio thing with him too. Awesome. Which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, because they're both, they're both just so good, like I said, at, at, you know, like I have this book club and I'm always talking to authors and, you know, a big reason, you know, the influence for it is watching Mike and the Mad Dog and, watching those guys talk about books and just how great they are at making good radio out of it. But um, I want to follow up about, you mentioned about the OJ thing, just because I thought it was funny that, you know, I was reading some reviews yesterday, kind of preparing, and I read the New York Times review, and I couldn't believe that, like, there's a sentence in the review where he's like, you know, Jane plays hard and loose with the facts, and, you know, and the example he gives is, you know, she said OJ is, Avis instead of Hertz, and it, it made me pause to to about credibility. I'm thinking, like, really? Like, what in the world is really the difference? If it was Avis, like, I get it. It's a, de- but I mean, to me, it's just like, a, it's almost a typo to me. You know what I mean? Like, there's no difference it, at all to me. Were you surprised that like, is that a real 2018 thing? This like need to point out every like. No matter how how insignificant, just like this, I gotcha thing. It feels like a 2018 internet thing. I just, I don't know. To me, what did you think? About I don't that? think it. I don't think it has anything to do with um, the moment in which we live. I think um, if you're an author and you put your stuff out there to be judged um, and either praised or criticized, and somebody uh, nails you on a mistake. That's legitimate. Okay, you think it's fair. All right. 
I thought it was I silly. Mean, I, you know, I made the mistakes. I, you know, do I think that they cast that those two mistakes undermine the credibility of the entire book? No, I don't. But it's it's certainly his right as a reviewer to point them out. And of course, <laughs> they're being corrected in subsequent um, right. editions. And then now early in the cycle, there was someone who tried to call you out on an error and you stood by it and said, no, that's not an error. Right. Well, was, I, I'm not. It was like the very first. Sure what you're speaking. It was the very first review that came out. I remember you had a post about it, and about how they had said there was an inaccuracy there, and you stood by that it wasn't an inaccuracy. And then I think they changed it in the review. Oh, um, oh, I think you're talking about Publishers Weekly, uh, which was uh, one of the, um, you know, it's one of the trade magazines that always does early reviews of books. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, when somebody gives you a starred review, um, uh, which this was, and then they, you know, um, support it and say it's one of the, you know, best books of the fall and one of the best books of 2018, you know, you just shut your mouth and say, thank you very much. Um, I, the only time, you know, we live in a world where... What is fact and what is not fact is a subject of debate in in the national conversation, and um, facts matter. So if I'm responsible for getting them wrong, you know I got to stand there and say I got it wrong. Um, and if uh, and if somebody writes that I misstated something or implies that I misstated something, and I know it to be wrong, I don't want that misunderstanding to be perpetuated so um it you know it was um i wasn't asking for a retraction i was asking for a a correction in the dates there was a mix-up in the dates of when he became um a pitcher for the red sox and when he was trading well i was about to say traded when he was sold to the yankees um so that was only um my only issue with that at all but again, I think if you're a, you're, you got to be a grown up, you know, and, and if you put your stuff out there, people are going to say what they're going to say and they have a right to. And if I made a mistake, I'll, I'll cop to it. And if they make a mistake, I will ask them to correct it. You kind of mentioned how the big, uh, the big fella is kind of based around the road show that Babe and Garrick took after the World Series. And I thought that was really interesting because, of course, your Kofax book was based around the like the inning by inning of a perfect game, and then the Mantle book was based on these twenty days, and that seems to be kind of your style uh, to tie the narrative together through this thread, and of course, this time it being the tour. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided to decided that this would be the hook? and kind of what it is about the style that you have that, I mean, it's what makes your books your books, but, you know, just give us a little bit of insight into how that that developed, why you like it, and how you decided on this specific theme for this book. Um, Well, I guess I'm just not a very linear person, you know, and going beginning, middle, and end um, just doesn't particularly interest me much. Also, to be, um, you know, more 
specific than that. When you have somebody who has been uh, the subject of as many biographies as have been written about Ruth, and many of them are extremely good, and each has contributed something new to the collective um, biography, if you will, then if you're going to go back to the well on a subject like this, you have to come up with a different story to tell and a different way to tell it. Otherwise, why bother? And I wanted people to understand what it was like to be Babe Ruth, king of the world in New York City um, in the fall of 1927 after he hits his 60th home run and after he runs around the bases crowing 60, count him 60, I'd like to see some other son of a bitch do that. <laughs> and, and then to beat the Pirates four straight, hitting the only two home runs in the 27 series. Um, and I wanted people to feel like what it was like to be around him, to be in his presence. So taking him out into the country, which is, among other things, factually what happened, um, is, um, it, you know, was an opportunity both because the local newspapers reported on each of these stops extensively and and uh, reported many of the kinds of details that would not have gotten uh, space during a regular baseball season. So there was fresh material in it, and and there was a, it was a way of seeing him interact with Gehrig and uh, and and the agent Christy Walsh, who's an important character in the in the story, mm-hmm. as he is the first sports agent, and also um, it was an opportunity to see you know, the world through his eyes. And I very much, you know, I, well, I, spent, I spent eight years working on this. And the first of those years, it was before I actually signed a contract. And I read everything that had been written about him and uh, hardcover, softcover, um, and, and, and a whole lot of newsprint. But um, what was clear to me from the get-go was that the little boy that his family called uh, Little George was totally absent, almost, almost, I should say, almost completely absent from all of those biographies. And as a reporter, you go, hmm, that's weird because, okay, it's true that sports biographies have always been sort of a subgenre and you're basically writing about um, people's careers, not their lives. So you're writing about their professional lives more than anything else. But still, it, it, it made my eyebrows go up. Why is, this, why is this kid missing? Why is everybody repeating the same uh, kind of phrases and generalities? And it made me suspicious that there was um, some, something untold and that there might be a, a reason other than just you know, um, convention of the moment for, for it being missing. And so, um, I, uh, uh, you know, I started digging and I thought if I could find that little boy and if I could find the voice of that little boy and connect it to, um, uh, you know, who he became, that then the whole thing might be worth doing. I gotta be honest. 
everything I thought I knew about Babe Ruth and especially the, well, not everything, but every, certainly everything I, I thought I knew about him as a child. As I read this book, I realized I didn't know anything, you know, so I think that is one of the strong parts of the book because I think that my impression was that the stork dropped him off at the orphanage. You know what I mean? Like I, I had no idea he had, <laughs> yeah. you know, these seven years or whatever in a, in a house with parents who, you know, treated him like a son because you hear about Babe Ruth. It's like, oh, he learned how to play baseball at his orphanage. That's like, that's the myth, you know? So I think like reading this book, you know, one thing that I feel like I'm going to take away from it most is I was able to separate a lot of the myth with more fact and have a better understanding of who he was. And I think that that is really important because I've seen it a lot, whether it's, I don't know if you've seen the documentary HBO did on Andre the Giant. Uh, he's no, a, I haven't. It's great. It's really well done. Bill Simmons and his team worked on it. But I only bring it up because he's another guy where a lot of his story is myth and it becomes larger than life. And the documentary did a really good job of like peeling that back a little bit and saying, like, these are the actual facts. And I think that's kind of the strength of the big fella for me, for me as a reader. Maybe there's other people out there who had a better understanding of his youth. Probably not if you're saying after everything you had read, even you needed to research it. But, you know, that's the biggest thing I took away from it is like, okay, the stork didn't drop him off. Okay, he did have these parents. You know, this is really, and it gave me a better understanding and I think helped me understand Babe a bit more. Was that certainly something you were, were going for then? Oh, once I was, you know, lucky enough to stumble on the material that filled in that yawning gap in his um in, in in his life i knew there was a story to tell and i knew that it explained who he became you're exactly right it's in every other account you know the distillation is he emerges fully fledged from the reform school where he spent the majority of his childhood st mary's industrial school on the western cusp of Baltimore City, and dons an Orioles uniform, you know, minor league uniform, um, hits the ball over the city of Fayetteville, um, you know, strikes out a bunch of Phillies, uh, and, and, and spends three months or whatever it was with, with the Orioles before being sold by Jack Dunn to the Red Sox, where he immediately goes to the World Series, albeit he doesn't get to pitch in it. Um, because uh, the manager doesn't trust him because he's a, a rookie. Actually, I just—I'm sorry—I just uh, skipped a year there. Um, he gets traded to the—he gets sold to the Red Sox in 1914, and then he gets married in 1914. So in this very short period of time, he goes from this incredibly sheltered life, regimented and sheltered life, to the big leagues and to being married. And um, you have to know what the predicate, what came before, to understand why he did what he did and how he became what he became. And, you know, there were two myths about him. One was that he was an orphan. And I still look at people say to me, you know, wherever I go to reading, so he was an orphan, right? And Babe Ruth would protest whenever people said that to him. No, I had parents. Right. But he never went further than that. And the only reason people thought he was an orphan was that St. Mary's accepted orphans. 
but they also accepted and were chartered to accept by the state and city uh, in Maryland um, what they called wayward boys and incorrigibles, which was a legal term for kids who were in trouble with the law, and the court basically sentenced them to uh, a period of time at St. Mary's. And they also took boarding students. And I go around and I say, so people, what do you, which do you think Babe Ruth was? Oh, well, he was an incorrigible. Oh, well, he was orphaned. No, he was a boarding student. His father paid for him to go there. And I'm going, what? You know, how does that, how does that add up? And then comes the big break. I go to interview his uh, still surviving daughter, Julia, who's 102 years old, and this is Friday, November 16th that we're discussing this. Yeah, big day. The day that Babe Ruth's family, um, or members of his family, I should say, were at the White House to accept his very belated Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, and, uh, you know, he he emerges from these documents that I was able to access only because you know, so much has been digitized since the original biographies have been written, was able to find out the reason he was at that school was not because of his own behavior. He was not a bad kid. No court sentenced him that I could find. Um, he, was sent, he was sent there because his parents' marriage was a mess and ended in divorce, which is what Julia, his daughter, who as I said, was unfortunately too old to be able to go to Washington today uh, for the presentation of the medal. Um, that was what she told me. She said, uh, you know, she said, well, Kate, Kate Schamberger, Ruth, his mother, and George Herman Ruth Sr. were, um, were you know, divorced. And, um, and with that hint, I mean, here, here's the difference between biography today and, you know, uh, even 10 years ago, all I had to do was go into the Maryland State Records, type in George Herman Ruth Sr. V. That was my contribution, you know, versus Kate Ruth, and up pops a whole uh, ream of, of um, documents about their very tawdry divorce. And it explains why he never wanted to talk about his childhood. Who would want to say, you know, my father caught my mother with a, with a uh, bartender, and he divorced her, and he threw her out. And, um, and the grounds for the, for the divorce were published in the Baltimore Sun, and the grounds were adultery and drunkenness. So, you know, I, I, it's completely understandable why he would never want to discuss that. Um, and it's also completely understandable why he would come to the conclusion that he was some kind of really bad kid because his parents whatever else was going on they 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 had had either uh, and I'm not sure which is correct because the documents are not complete they either had six or eight children but of the six I was able to identify and find birth and death records for two of them died Four, four died, and two of those four died from malnutrition. So by the time he's seven years old and gets packed off to St. Mary's, he has seen siblings die again and again and again and again. And they still don't want him. They're still sending him away. 
So how does that feel to a seven-year-old kid who thinks he's eight because his mother didn't remember what year he was born? You know, and then you start then the, the, the empathy for him and what that must have felt like and why he needed the amount of public adoration that you, you know, see him seeking and basking in. Um, suddenly he makes sense. Yeah, I was blown away by the mother not knowing his birth year. You know, it's one of those things as a parent you just can't fathom. Well, and as you know, and I pointed out in there that it was a very notable February in 1895 because there was this huge storm that, you know, brewed on the West Coast and moved to the East Coast and marched up the coast from Florida and was called the, you know, uh, the blizzard of 95 and and the whole Baltimore Harbor froze over, and there was a fire, actually, in a building um, not far from the home where he was born, and that was the home of his uh, maternal grandparents. And the fire was so bad, and the temperatures were so, um, you know, so uh, awful that, that the water froze as it came out of the hoses and, and clung to the firemen's clothes, and, and they, they had to be cut out of them. It was... You know, it's a, it was a horrific couple of days. So how would you, for, I mean, how would you forget your kid's birthday and how would you forget that it occurred simultaneously with this event? Right, it's like... This weather event. It's like having a kid born during the 89 earthquake in San Francisco or something and somehow not... Yeah, remember. exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, right. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a land, it's a, it's a landmark in time for more than one reason and, and therefore you would assume that it would be um, locked in memory. Yeah, I'll never forget, I had a son born on 9-11-2002. What? That's not right. It was yeah. 2001. Um, the other thing I think that I learned uh, most, well, first of all, I knew nothing about the agent. You know, So that whole part of it was like you know, learning about a 1927 Scott Boris, if we're making an analogy or whatever, was really cool kind of a really interesting part of the book because um, I, I knew nothing. I didn't even know he existed. So it was fun to learn about him. And that kind of ties into the the other thing that I really enjoyed learning about was the relationship between Gehrig and Ruth because my understanding of it was really narrow and really slim. And I thought that the book did a great job of kind of just through the trip kind of flushing out a little bit more about these two larger-than-life teammates, you know, who you can make a lot of similar. They they live. You know, there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences, obviously. But um, tell me about kind of untangling the relationship between Ruth and Garrick. Well, you know, a lot of people have written about it and gave and reporters who covered them and knew them had given substantial substantial. Um, interviews to the former Major League Baseball historian Jerome uh, Holzman and to other, um, you know, authors um, like Marshall Hunt, who covered the Yankees starting, I think, in 2022, something like that, for the Daily News, and who covered it the entire time uh, Babe was there, um, you know, had been taped by previous authors who through their own, through their generosity I might add you know donated materials to the Hall of Fame to make it available for 
subsequent generations of authors such as myself. Um, so there was some material on it, and it had been written about uh, by John Eig in his really good biography of Gehrig. Um, but, you know, again, over time, things become so reductive. So, you know, what do you know about Babe's childhood? Well, he was an orphan. Oh, you know, and that's, that's encapsulated. What do you know about Gehrig and Ruth? They didn't talk to each other because Lou's mom, you know, criticized Babe's second wife, Claire, for how he dressed the first daughter, Dorothy. I mean, that, you know, it, it becomes just a, right. a, like a nugget of, of irreducible, but also unprovable fact. And so, you know, Gehrig is 24 years old in 1927. So this is a snapshot of a relationship that was not a relationship of equals in terms of age and experience by any stretch of the imagination. Um, though, of course, Gehrig had come into his own so fully uh, during that year and had kept up with him in the home run chase through most of um, the season up until early, mid-September. Um, so Gehrig was blooming as a player that year, but he was also a real homeboy and a mama's boy, and that makes him the opposite of Ruth, who was the motherless boy. And... Um, you know, they both have this German immigrant background. Um, and, you know, Lou, I think, was a little bit like a puppy dog following him around. And he wasn't established enough as a star in his own right um, to, I think, feel competitive with Ruth. I think some of that came in later. Um, but at that point, you know, he really sees he's the young kid. And in one of the stories that was written about this 27 tour, you know, oh, it was a real education to travel around with the babe. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> like, he, he, yeah, exactly. I bet. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we would have gotten arrested a lot of times if it hadn't been for him. <laughs> it's like, yeah, he, he, I bet he is a really good t- tour guide. Um, you know, so... And again, in many of those stories, the local stories that, you know, where reporters are getting access to Ruth and Gehrig, and admittedly, it's a snapshot. It's not, it's not a, you know, long sit down, but they're seeing, hearing and seeing the byplay between them. You know, you can tell, you know, that it's kidding. It's affectionate. They're having a good time. Um and uh, it was it was only later, at the very end of Ruth's career, that the real final rift occurred. There was some stuff over, you know, criticizing Claire Ruth, his second wife, about favoring her daughter Julia, her biological daughter Julia, who is the one who is still alive, um, at the expense of the daughter that was the product of the first marriage of Babe and Helen, um, Dorothy Ruth, who is deceased and has been since the 80s. Um, But one of Dorothy's daughters, um, Linda, told me, you know, yeah, it's true, she did, but she was also a tomboy, and she was also provocative. And if, if they said get dressed up nicely because the newspaper men are coming over, you know, She'd go climb in a coal bin first. 
So, you know, nothing is as reductive as history often, you know, makes it seem. It was interesting because when I was reading about that stuff, I was kind of thinking about Lenin a little bit, you know, because, you know, Yoko has had, obviously had a similar criticism of her with Sean and the other son. And I don't know, I, I was just thinking about that for a second when I was reading along about how. And, and it, I don't it, see a whole lot of similarities between John Lennon and and, um, and Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth. Well, no. here's the the one. They both lived on the west side of Manhattan. <laughs> and, and here's the other one. They're both larger than life stars, right? And you do spend a lot of time in the book, uh, kind of talking just about, you know, like just the title, the big fella. You know, like that. Just this idea of like Babe Ruth, just how transcendent he was, not just as a baseball player. But as a celebrity and a person in the culture, uh, the developing culture of the United States of America, like, you know, to think that he got the presidential honor of freedom today, it's one of those things where you would have been like, wait, he didn't get it 100 years ago. You know, like you, you almost couldn't you almost can't believe something like that because he is just such a transcendent star. It's almost impossible in 2018 to have another Babe Ruth, you know, like and I think you did a good job in the book kind of just talking about his celebrity and um the way that he i don't know if I, if innovative innovated is the right word but just the way he he almost created a genre in a way um and uh i thought that that was all very interesting and um and maybe interesting today uh as, as since we talk on the day that he did finally uh, get the uh, get the honor from the president who who Jane did fact check on Twitter, uh, which I loved um, for 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 making a few mistakes in his uh, in his speech. Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, if you're gonna go around criticizing people for, for fake uh, making fake news, I think you better get the facts right. Um, um, he can I, tend I, to be. I, I think Babe Ruth. Um, uh, I, I, he was what Mike Rizzo, the general manager of the senator, uh, senators. Oh, that's funny. The Nats call call an original, original. Um, and and he really was a kind of revolutionary in baseball. And partly that was his anti-authoritarian soul that matured under the care of the Zaverian brothers who ran St. Mary's. Um, you know, so he's the first to hire someone, an agent, Christy Walsh, to protect and promote his interests. That's unheard of because ballplayers didn't have interests to promote. <laughs> and certainly even, even Walsh, you know, couldn't do the whole Megillah because he wasn't allowed to go into contract negotiations. And that wouldn't change. Um, the playing field would not be you know, evened until Marvin Miller came along in the, in the 60s. But he hires this guy, you know, who's giving him advice behind the scenes, trying to teach him how to negotiate on his own behalf, you know, with, with Jake Rupert, um, which was not particularly successful, but he, was, he, tried, he gave it a try. And he's, and he's putting his name on all kinds of products, and he's taking him out on the road and barnstorming and vaudeville tours and making money in the off-season. And this is brand new, and he's based, and and he creates a newspaper syndicate, for which Babe Ruth is the star writer, quote unquote, um, because of course they're ghost-written stories written by a lot of the reporters who are covering the Babe. 
so it's completely corrupt and complicit in terms of journalism, but it gives the fans the illusion that he's talking to them. And that's as close as you're going to get in 1920 when Babe Ruth comes to New York, because there is no radio. And, the, you know, what, and, and, and there are no quotes in the newspapers, because reporters didn't do that then. They didn't see any reason to go down to a locker room and say, you know, where was the pitch, or is your arm hurt, or whatever. Um, they were writing parable, parables from press boxes high over, you know, the field. Um, so he was a pioneer in that. He was a pioneer in the, the very Im- most important sense that he refused to play little ball. You know, why, why you know, who says you have to, uh, who, who says bunt and slash is the only way to play baseball? I can swing a bat. I can swing a 54-ounce maple bat or a hickory bat and hit the ball out of the ballpark with one swing. Why am I going to sit here and be part of this? Let's move a guy from station to station to station and hope he scores and have, you know, the marion the players be marionettes for the, you know, John McGraws of the world. And he was a radical in that he insisted on his right to play in the off season to make a living any way you know he could, which is in the best way he could, which is of course hitting a baseball. And so he got in Dutch with uh, Commissioner Landis, who you know said you you can't do that. We have a rule. We have a rule that if you're on a major league World Series team, you can't barnstorm in the off season. Well, yes, there was that rule. It had never been enforced because it was so stupid, and nobody could you know why why would you do that? But it, baseball was myopic. You know, they thought that somehow sending, uh, allowing Ruth to go out to small towns in Elmira, New York, you know, and Springfield, Massachusetts, and let people see what a major leaguer looks like was going to somehow dilute their fan base as opposed to increase the market. Right. So he was he was way ahead of them in, in that. And he was also, you know, ahead of them in terms of being... Willings from starting in 1918 to barnstorm play regularly um, whenever he went on these tours against Negro leaguers, um, which was not, you know, in fashion at that time. Um, so, you know, it's uh, there, there, there's a lot of firsts about him, and thanks to the relations of Christy Walsh that I was able to meet who gave me documents that I could use. Um, I was able to put together a portrait of this guy who was very, very key, not just in Ruth's life, but in the development of the marketing of athletes. And together, Christine Walsh and Babe Ruth create a template for how to be famous in America. Mm-hmm. And that template hasn't really changed. It's just the degree of money that's changed. And if you look at baseball today, you know, if it's lagging behind the NFL and the NBA, it's because they need stars, right? Like the NBA is totally built around stars. The NFL is basically built around quarterbacks being stars. And, you know, your Major League Baseball, it just feels like, they, man, would they, would they die to have a Babe Ruth in the league right now, right? I mean, just a star like that. Um, so there's, a, there's a, um, a, a, a resource called Open Endorse 
that I found out about, um, and it, it basically keeps track of the endorsement income of professional athletes. Um, and and I, I I was stunned to learn, and I, I'm quoting myself, and I may be misquoting myself because I don't have the book right in front of me, but I believe the highest-earning Major League Baseball player in terms of endorsements is Buster Posey, and I think that that was at about uh, number 54 at $5 million. Wow. Babe Ruth made made the equivalent of $36 million between his Yankee salary and his off-the-field income in 1927. So that tells you how much baseball has failed to produce market, and sustain superstars. I think Babe Ruth would be rolling over in his grave. I, I think he'd have a hard time believing that. That's amazing. I, you know, I thought that Harper maybe could have a chance to be kind of a breakthrough star, but he hasn't been as transcendent on the field, I think, as we thought. He's good. He's not great, though, you know. But I thought he maybe had some uh, of the And right... he hasn't been in a World Series. Yeah, no, he hasn't even been at, won a playoff round. I think he's been in the playoffs twice, and I think they lost the first round both times. Um, yeah, so he hasn't been able to break through. But I thought, you know, just that he that he could maybe be a guy that, that had the right temperament. But you know, no one's ever going to be Babe Ruth. But just you know, maybe the you know what I'm trying to say. Um, what well, no, he, he, nobody will be Babe Ruth. Of course not. Yeah, because he was the first. Yeah, and you know, will somebody come along? And do things with a baseball bat that astonish us um, the way Ruth astonished his generation of baseball fans. Sure, because the nature of human beings is to push limits and to improve that which seems unimprovable. So yes, somebody will do it. Whether they will have the um, uh, series of fortuitous. Um, circumstances that he had, which was a he was in New York when not just it was the media capital, but it was becoming the media capital. Marketing Madison Avenue was you know being developed when he arrived in New York, um, and, and and tabloid newspapers you know went to press six months, six eight months before he arrived in New York. The back page dedicating back page of those tabloids to sports, giving every, giving an opportunity to fill half a page with Babe's big mug, you know, started in November 1919, two months before he comes to New York. Uh, so, you know, he had a stage, and that stage was soon amplified by radio. And, you know, up until radio, Sports stars were really local stars. Their their fame was traveled as far as the local paper's circulation. Once radio comes in, it's a whole. Uh, you know, we're talking um, amplification and the creation of national stars that is entirely different. The book is called Babe Ruth, or the Big Fella, Babe Ruth in the World He Created, and it's of course written by Jane Levy and. Um, you can find Jane on Twitter now, which I'm really excited about. It's at Jane, L-E-A-V-Y-1. Please, Jane, you were thinking about me when you made this account, right? You were like, oh, Steve's going to finally get off my back about being on Twitter. I get a little bit of credit, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm uh, yes. It okay. was all it was all due to you. Thank you. I swore. You know, no, I, you know when they went for when went from 140 characters to 280. That's right, isn't it? To yes, 280 now. you got it. Yep. Um, um, uh, I, I, you know, and the publishers were on my on my my case to do this. Um, you know, uh, I've got. I still think it's reductive, and I still think, um, I, and I still think that there's a better way to communicate in the world than reducing everything to 240 characters. Um, but, um, yes, um, you know, I'm doing it. What can I say? I've given in. <laughs> well, that's more, you know, S.L. Price, good, good friend of the show. He's on Twitter cause of me, but he won't admit it. So at least he gave me a little bit of credit. Um, he's a, he's a great writer. Oh, he's he really a good. terrific writer. He's a great, he's a great but guy too. He's always good to me. I, I think what's really, you know, most important to me about the book, Steve, yeah. is that the big fella acquires human dimension in it you can understand without without his childhood you could not understand how it is or why it is that when you saw him in a group of five thousand boys hanging on his arms and his legs and draped over his shoulders like some fur boa that his wife might have had you know you can't understand why it is that he needs that and thrives on it. That's where he's happiest. There's a picture, and I, we used it in the um, uh, the end papers of the book, uh, taken in Syracuse, New York, um, in August 25, back when the Yankees actually played exhibition games. Um, you know, during the uh, during the season, and um, you know, he's thrilled. You know, can you imagine Aaron Judge, you know, in the middle of 5,000 boys all trying to get in a single, you know, camera frame with him? <laughs> you know, he'd be, you know, they'd all be looking around for the bodyguards and the police to come rescue them. And Babe Ruth is basking in it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's awesome. Makes me think of Connor McDavid. Did you ever see that picture of Connor McDavid with the Asian couple at the airport? Uh, no, I apologize. I can't. Say <laughs> oh, that I it's have. just, it's just, it's, he's the most, like, he's just the most awkward human being ever in the picture. Like he's so uncomfortable. It's just these, this one old sweet Asian couple wanting to get a picture of Connor McDavid. You got, you, I'll send it to you so you can see it, but it's the, it's the exact, it. yeah, it's the exact opposite of this picture basically. But, um, let me ask you this real quick. I, we'll get you out of here in a second. But, um, Jeff Perlman was on this show a few weeks ago. He just wrote a book about the USFL called football for a buck and uh, right. it's a book he told me that nobody he was told nobody wanted this book um he had to take less money to write it it was a passion project for him and he just did it because it was a dream you know you've wrote three of the best baseball biographies ever Koufax Mantle and Ruth and I know Mantle was your guy so maybe that's even the answer but when you think about what's next, is there, even if it's not going to happen, is there a book out there that would maybe fit Jeff's description as one that you'd love to write? Maybe people wouldn't write it, but maybe you'll do it anyway and it'll come out and you'll be vindicated. Like, is, is there is there a project like that or? I'll be vindicated in what sense? I don't understand. Well, you know, like Jeff's book ended up being a hit, so he was right. You know that people oh, did I want see. this book, uh, and maybe that's not even the important part. 
I'm kind of trying to soft pry into what you might be thinking about doing next by framing it in this silly. You, does, does the word bally mean anything to you? <laughs> it does. I don't have a. Uh, I don't. I don't think. Well, let me put it this way: People say, "Why did you do the Babe?" Well, who are you going to do after Mantle and Koufax? Right. Okay. There's a fair question, and that's a good answer. Who do you do after Koufax, Mantle, and and Ruth? I don't think there is another character out there that I could see myself spending that kind of amount of time with, or even half that amount of time with. Um, there certainly are other incredibly important and transformative baseball players, but many of those have had very good biographies written about them, you know, that I don't see any reason to, um, uh, you know, go back to and, and, and think there's going to be, think there was something missing there. I mean, you know, nobody's going to do Joe DiMaggio better than Richard Ben Kramer did Joe DiMaggio. So, and I don't see any stars who are currently playing um, or recently retired who are compelling enough, um, you know, to demand that kind of um, attention. And the guys who are still playing who might, you know, turn out to be worthy of that kind of attention. I mean, you know, Mookie Betts is looking pretty good right now. Um, There's no third act. Right. And people try to write stories before they happen, and that's that's a, that's a killer for a book. You know, I mean, you just you don't know what's going to happen. You have to let the story tell itself before you can try to tell it with some perspective. And um, there's a reason that you know things take a long time. And admittedly, they take me a longer time than most people. But you know, I came to admire him tremendously more, even more than I expected because this is a guy whose family abandoned him to an institution that while they, I think they took good care of the kids and they maybe uh, made them and they made them safe and they were probably in better circumstances than they might otherwise have been. Uh, the fact is it was not a family there was not a lot of love there, um, and there was not a lot of food there. The one thing his daughter, Julia, told me that he ever said about St. Mary's was, I never felt full. And that wasn't just a statement of, of physiological you know, hunger. That's also about love, feeling yeah. empty yeah. inside. Mm-hmm. And I think he spent the rest of his adult life trying to fill in that hole that was created by the abandonment. And he tried to fill it with women and beer and food and cigars and crowds and crowds of people, you know, clambering over fences and bandboxes all over the country to get near him. And the, the, the terribly sad thing is that after baseball was done with him, um, they found no use for him, no place for him. Um, and he had, as one of his granddaughters said, made the mistake of making the game his family in a lot of ways. Um, and when baseball abandoned him after 1935, it was completely um, 
like a reincarnation or a repetition of the abandonment by his family. And I think it was excruciating. And yet I think he carried himself with extraordinary dignity. And um, yet I think there was also a lot of sadness there. Yeah, and then, of course, the sadness in his cancer and in his passing away. Uh, I think that doing these books and writing is part of what makes you full. So I find it hard to believe that there won't be something someday that is going to make you want to maybe not spend eight years. Well, there's a non-sports book that I would like to write. Tell me about it. But do uh, you want to hear about that? Yes. Okay. All right. Um and it, well, I'm partly um, it's it's because it's my dad who suggested it so many years ago, and he's been dead now since 2003. But um, uh, my father spent the uh, World War II um, eating halibut and playing ping pong in the Aleutian Islands. And just about three months before his death, he said to me, and he was a New York guy and a entertainment lawyer. And he was pretty blind from macular degeneration. He couldn't much hear, but he still could think. And he hadn't lost his memory. And he said to me, um, baby, I got your next book. <laughs> I said, sure, Dad. What is it? And he said that there was an untold story about World War II um, pertaining to the commander of the armed forces of the Aleutian Islands who rightly predicted that if the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, they would surely come north to try to take the Aleutians, uh, that you know archipelago of islands extending into the Bering Sea, so that they could control those waters. And sure enough, that did happen. Um, and he, this, this commander, pleaded for men and materiel that didn't exist, um, and when um, the attack he uh, predicted came, um, he had very little to fight with, uh, but he created a, a, an airstrip out of tundra and pontoons, and he had 12 planes, my dad said, six fighters and six um, uh, bombers. And um, according to my father, the, the guy ordered the pilots to fly in succession till their fuel ran out um, to make create the illusion that there were more of them than there really were. And he then, um, uh, they succeeded in, in, you know, sinking and or damaging uh, the, the ship captained by uh, the top, you know, Japanese commander. And according to my father, recovered code books that helped solve the Japanese code and plans for an invasion of the West Coast. I'm ready. Let's do it. I, this sounds like... And I don't know if it's true, and I don't know how to do military research, <laughs> but um, I would love to know whether that story is true. I think it'd be a sweet book, and then I think HBO would buy it, and it would be Band of Brothers 2 would be the, uh, you know, you get an eight-part an eight HBO miniseries on it. I mean, it sounds perfect. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, listen, Jane is the one of the best, one of the all-time greats, and she's been all-time great to me. Uh, and it doesn't matter if she's writing about World War II or Babe Ruth or ballet dancing or <laughs> name the topic. Ballet I'm dancing. In. I used to be a be- I used to be able to do that. Yep. Yeah. Well, 
My daughter's learning. Yeah. Yeah, my daughter's learning, so. Um, we can do it. We can do it together. Yeah, yeah. You're always welcome. She, she's she's a, she's a sponge. Uh, but whatever it is, I'm I'm all in. Um, I don't know if when the book came, if I in my head thought I needed a 600-page book about Babe Ruth in my life, and then I was 25 pages in and realized I absolutely did. Um, and again, <laughs> the book is called The Big Fella, Babe, Babe Ruth and the World He Created uh, by the great Jane Levy. And again, she's on Twitter now. Um, so say hello to her. Give her a follow at uh, Jane, L-E-A-V-Y-1 on Twitter. Um, yeah, I, I'm still grabbing, you know, but he has new stories, stuff like that. Love to hear it. Thank you so much for all the time, Jane. Um, congratulations on another great book. I uh, hope you uh, hope, hope the arm feels better, the, the nerve or uh, whatever you're battling. And Thank um, you, Steve. We'll talk uh, Thank you for soon, being so hopefully. kind to, to me and my books all the way through. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I want to thank the great Jane Levy For being on the podcast today The big fella her Babe Ruth book, one of the great books in the history of the book club, and the second from Jane, of course, her Mickey Mantle book was one of the very first uh, ever to be featured in the book club. We've been doing the book club since 2011, and every once in a while, uh, something happens like what happened this week. Uh, Tim Hornbaker is a guy who wrote a book called Death to the Territories, and this is the last time I'm ever going to mention it. The way it works is I send out a very clear and detailed uh, pitch to the publisher of the book, which in this case is ECW Press. And I request one copy of the book or more if they'd like me to give some away. And then I also request 20 to 30 minutes with the author to talk about the book. And I promise to read it, prepare a good interview, and I sent the pitch to ECW Press. They wrote back. They said, absolutely. They asked for a list of dates I'd be available for an interview. I gave them 10 different dates and also said, but I'm also available whenever the author is, if these dates don't work. And then after reading some of the book and promoting the book for a few weeks and doing what I agreed to do out of good faith to the agreement I made with ECW Press, they wrote back and they said that, Tim is overextended and those dates don't work and he's not available. And I wrote back and said, those dates were just dates. I can do any date. And uh, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I already gave the books away to people in a wrestling group I know of. Uh, I have no interest in ever talking about Tim or his book again. He's dead to me. Uh, and it happened at a good time because another author happened to reach out and uh his name is David Grisbowski, and he has a book that came out today uh, called Mr. All Around, The Life of Tom Gala. So we're going to start promoting this because David reached out to me, and uh, he's really excited 
uh, to be a part of uh, the book club. And uh, we're really excited to help him promote his book. Uh, and it works the best, really, when the author reaches out to me. Because uh, that obviously means he's into it. Again, his name is David Grzybowski. And you can follow him on Twitter. He's at David G-R-Z-Y-T-V on Twitter. Uh, TomGalaBook.com. G-O-L-A Book.com. Uh, again, it's called Mr. All Around the Life of Tom Gala. I don't know if I'm going to have a copy of it or not to send out uh, because I haven't gotten mine yet. But when I do, uh, if we do have copies, I'll let you know. Uh, All out of copies of Jane's book. Still have a copy of Football for a Buck by Jeff Perlman. If you want that, give away all of Death to the Territories. And that leads us to the other two books we're working right now. Down Goes Brown, History of the NHL. The World's Most Beautiful Sport, The World's Most Ridiculous League by Sean McIndoe. Uh, had two copies of this to give away and, and gave them both away. Really looking forward to talking to Sean about it. And I've read a little bit of it, but most of my time has been spent uh, working on another book called Quarterback by John Feinstein. Now, again, I'm a little nervous. I'm going to be honest. I am working with someone at Doubleday named Charlotte. And a couple of weeks ago, Charlotte said, are you available for an interview on November 19th? And I said, absolutely. Uh, so we booked the interview on November 19th. I today confirmed it. And she said at this point, she hasn't gotten a response from John Feinstein, whether he's going to do the interview. So that blows my mind. I've been promoting it. I've been reading this book quarterback. I'm nervous. We'll see what happens. Hopefully, John... You know, hopefully it's just one of those things they haven't touched base yet and it's going to work out. I don't know. I just don't know. But if I go through all the trouble of reading this book, uh, I'm not going to be happy. Um, you know, dealing with uh, with PR people sometimes is just they make all the promises and you believe them and then sometimes it doesn't work out. And I'm not here to protect anyone. So, you know, I don't have any problem saying what happened with Tim Hornbarker. And I got the emails if anyone wants to see him. So, um, but with all that said, this is where we stand right now. I'm not writing off quarterback. I don't have any reason to yet. It's again, quarterback. It's officially in stores inside the most important position in the national football league by John Feinstein down goes Brown, the history of the NHL, the world's most beautiful sport, the world's most ridiculous league. And also our new book about Tom Gala, which I'm excited about. David Grzybowski is the author. Mr. All-Around, The Life of Tom Gala. Also, uh, one last thing about the book club is I did reach out to two authors uh, today. I reached out to Anthony Cumia's team uh, to try to do his book, Permanently Suspended. And I reached out to Gabe Polsky again to see if we're going to do something uh, with his new documentary like we did when Red Army came out. So I'm waiting to hear from both of them, and I'll give you an update when I have one. All right, I think that's it for the book club. So let's take a break. We're going to come back with Josh Levine from Slate. Now, Josh reached out to me and said, I got a producer and he can patch me in through a board and we can go Skype to Skype. We never got that to work. So we ended up having to go Skype to phone. And Josh is quiet. Uh, I did the best I could with it. Uh, I apologize if there's times where you can't hear him. Uh, I thought most of the time you could hear him. I'm a little bit louder than him, and he's just a little bit lower than I would like. 
uh, I, you know, I'm at the mercy of technology sometimes, and I don't know if that was the problem. I don't know if his producer just didn't get his volume up high enough. Uh, I don't know if him being patched through a board, you know, like I almost wish I just could have called his cell phone. I feel like we would have had a better connection, but I wanted to give everyone a heads up on that. Uh, but we have a pretty interesting conversation. We kind of go a bunch of different places with it. Uh, so Josh Levine from Slate. <laughs> Our next guest today is from New Orleans, Louisiana, and is a graduate of Brown University. He's an editor at Slate. He's making his third appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Josh Levine. What's up, Josh? How you doing, buddy? Doing great. Thank you for having me back. Welcome back. Uh, it's been a bit. I like to um, like to look you up at least once a year to catch up. Uh, Hang Up and Listen is the podcast on Slate, and... Uh, you know, I, I listen and uh, I like to um, I like to track you down and talk to I like to talk to people who do podcasts at least a couple times um, that do them themselves because I want to ask you this. You know, when I started this, I started my podcast in 2011. We can kind of start here, and um, the first kind of big big guest we got was Peter King, and I remember him saying to me what is it you want me to do exactly? Like he didn't really know, you know, exactly what I was asking him for and ter- like what a podcast was. It was like, he kind of knew the term, but like, what did that mean really? You know, and now you fast forward to now he's got his own podcast and so does everyone else. And as the space evolves and grows and more and more people have one, I mean, it was ridiculous enough when I had one and still have one. And, uh, how how does it affect what you do? Like, did, have you noticed a difference in in your booking or in how you guys prepare to try to create something that has its unique place in the podcast landscape, or do you just do what you do and podcasts evolve around you? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I feel like there's more familiarity with our show and just the existence of shows like ours in general, which can make it easier to book. People aren't um, like, what's a podcast anymore? Or uh, just questioning whether we're legit or the medium is legit. In terms of booking, um, sometimes it's more challenging because people have their own shows. Uh, And so somebody that we might have been able to get back in the day, they're like busy up doing their own thing and certain places have like exclusivity deals. And so it can be a challenge like that. It has to run through PR and which is always a pain. Um, so I feel like it can work both ways. Um, but the thing that hasn't changed at all is that some people seem to have more of a gift for the medium or just more fluid as talkers and conversationalists, especially on a chat show where it's three or four people talking, um, it's, you know, often not as much about um, experience as it is with chemistry, just with the group. And you kind of just have to figure that out um, with a new person and it either works or it doesn't work and you want to have them back or you don't want to have them back. It's not that we're bragging, but, you know, in 2014, we were both named by Sports Illustrated as honorable mentions 
uh, for podcast of the year. So I, so I feel like we should have some credibility. What an honor. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt so so honorable and honored. It's literally the only honor that this show has ever had. So I, I have to try to <laughs> I have to try to boost it up whenever I can. You know what I mean? Like uh, as an independent, we were the only independent that year, and still the only independent that's ever been mentioned um, in that award. But again, not like we're bragging about it. But uh, it's still interesting to me. And I don't know if you find this. You mentioned PR and rules and stuff. It's interesting to me how inconsistent that can be. You know, like when I deal with ESPN, I have a great relationship with one of the PR guys there, and he'll book anyone for me. We've had the Monday Night Football play-by-play announcer for six straight years. But if I email the PR person in charge of college football, she insists that there's a rule that bans anyone from ESPN being on my show. So it's like stuff like that can sometimes be confusing and difficult to navigate. But I'm sure for you, you know, with slate behind you maybe those things are less you know less often no i think it's similar i mean with espn or anywhere else i think those rules exist so that they can invoke them when they don't want to do something right um and the rules can always be broken or bended or somehow magically disappear if they want to promote something or if you do have a good relationship with somebody or if you have a direct relationship with um, talent over there, sometimes the rules don't apply and sometimes there are folks over there that are like, oh, I would love to do the show, but like PR says I can't and maybe it's just an excuse because they don't actually want to do it. Um, And so it's like you, you see this in a lot of areas in life, right, where, like, a law is on the books or a rule is on the books, and it's just applied selectively in a way that doesn't always make sense or doesn't, it, it can seem capricious, and, uh, you know, that this is just the way the world works, my friend. It's almost like getting it to speeding in a way, like, you know, Bill Hoffheimer allows, allows me to go 85 you know, into Connecticut, but <laughs> Carrie Potts is like, you one mile over 55 and you're getting pulled over. You know what I mean? It's like, so I guess that's just kind of how, like, that's probably a good point. It's just those rules exist, I suppose, but they're not, you know, necessarily, they don't need to be enforced. It's case by case, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a relationship business and ESPN can kind of set their own rules and they're um, a Goliath. And so, you know, in a lot of cases, you just don't have any choice. But uh, if you if you want to get folks on your show, you don't really have any choice but to go along with what they say. Right. Who am I to say anything to them? You know what I mean? Like, Who are you other than the 2014 honorable mention? Exactly. That's it. That's all I am. You know what I mean? That's it. So, And I think an ESPN podcast won the award that year. So I was already, you know, already well below them. Um, even, though, even though it was one they deleted. The winner was the uh, the infamous Bill Simmons podcast they deleted. Uh, you know, I, I I want one thing that our podcasts also do similarly. I was listening to 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 them. Well, I've listened to them many many episodes of both. And uh, one thing that we both do is we end our show with sort of a uh, a monologue. Uh, I call mine one last thing, and do you call yours pot shots? Is that right? After balls. After okay, after balls. That's right. I'm sorry. Um, and I have spent the last 
couple months really working hard on making that part of the show a little bit more personal. Um, generally, I feel like no one cares about me that people who do listen, listen to hear me talk to people like you. So I try to keep myself out of it as much as I can. But since that is the last thing and it's so easy for anyone to turn it off at that point, if they truly don't care, I kind of have went in this direction where, you know, I'm going to pull from Howard Stern a little bit and see if being honest and being open and sharing part of myself is something people are interested in. And I've gotten good feedback on it. I'm just curious in general how you approach your time at the end of the show. I know, you know, usually you focus on a sports topic, but it's also a time for you really to 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 give your opinion very much and uh you guys work you guys do a really great job with them. It's it's probably my favorite part of the show actually. But I was just curious. I wanted to give you a little bit behind kind of what I've been doing with that spot and how I've been thinking through it. And I was just curious a little bit about how you think through it and, and kind of what your goals are and, and how you maybe would want to keep it the same or change them as, as, as these shows are always evolving. Yeah. I mean, as far as the personal stuff goes, I think we kind of integrate that throughout the show, both in, uh, in after walls, but also in the kind of conversation segments and in interviews and folks who listen to the show know that I'm from New Orleans. I root for LSU and the Saints. Um, they know that Stefan uh, plays Scrabble and, and kick for the Broncos. Um, these are things that kind of come up and, and recur, and it's a very personal medium. And I think putting that personal stuff in the show kind of helps build the connection with the audience and establishes a rapport with folks that they feel like they know you, they do know you to some extent, and keeps people coming back to the show and feeling like a part of a community. Um, so I think you'll see those patterns as well in the monologues that I do. Some of them have to do with personal stuff, stuff that I like, stuff that I've noticed. But sometimes it's just a venue for me to point out stuff that wouldn't fit in the format otherwise, just like weird stuff that I've noticed, whether it's obscure sports or opinions that I have. Um, the most recent one that I did was my argument that Le'Veon Bell would have been better off instead of sitting out the season to try to preserve his body and get a long-term deal, that he would have, um, it would have made more sense for him to just take lots of performance-enhancing drugs because then he could have been suspended, would still have lost money, but would have had his body full of performance-enhancing drugs that would have enhanced his performance. Uh, which is just kind of a slightly absurd, uh, modest proposal of an argument, <laughs> but it was based around Mark Ingram uh, from, from the Saints and how he missed uh, four games this year. It doesn't seem to have damaged his reputation at all, but it helped preserve his body, and he's uh, playing well now. So these are just like a thing that occurred to me um, that I wanted to have a couple minutes to, to talk about. Sometimes it's like a thing I've come across um, doing research, and I wanted to look into it more deeply by doing a little bit of archival digging. Um, you know, so it, it's just a way for me to kind of smuggle a little bit of my personality and a little more journalism into the show. You, you drove me right to the Saints. I, I want to talk about Mark Ingram, and I want to talk about recovery. 
from last year in a second. But uh, let's stick on this for one more second. Let's follow up real quick. Yeah, you know, yep. I was thinking about, as you were saying, the things people know about you. And that's what I think I've really tried to focus on is what I want people to know about me and how I want to. They know that I love that, you know, that I'm a kid from Buffalo who loves the Saints and the Sabres and that, you know, uh, I do this podcast and I do it in my house. So my two-year-old daughter might walk in the room any second now and, and be, on, be on Mike. And they don't look at that as some kind of like crazy unprofessional thing. They look at that as the culture of the show. And they know that I battle Crohn's disease. And, you know, that if we're off the air for three weeks, it might be because I was in the hospital again. Like, And I'm trying to really kind of open those things up. And um, it's interesting to me that since I've been doing it, the one thing I've noticed different is the emails. You know, I might do six shows in a row and have the six best guests we've had all year and not get an email. And then I talk about having a bowel blockage and having to get an NG tube in. And I get nine emails from people who are saying, this happened to me or that happened to me. I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah. Whatever. So it, it, it's interesting that, you know, even though this is a sports show, mostly – um, even though I spent an hour talking to a guy last week who wrote a book about David Letterman, it's just really interesting to me how when you do open up, it seems like that's when you get the the the, the back and forth. Do you, do you find that too? I think so, yeah. And you don't know like when you had the six best guests True. ever. Um, True. It's possible that people love those shows and just didn't feel as compelled to write in as they did when you, um, you know, shared that stuff about your, your life and your medical challenges. And I think, um, back in the day when I was working for Slate, before I did the podcast, I started at Slate in 2003. I used to get a, I used to get a lot more email just because social media didn't exist then. So when I wrote a sto- stories about Katrina, um, got a lot of emails, um, which are great to have. People are super thoughtful and kind, and you get better feedback that way. But when I write stuff now, um, and to some degree with the podcast, I think people don't think about, I'm going to write an email. They'll post a short comment on Facebook or a tweet. send a tweet. Right. Um, right. And it's just, I, I miss the email era, but there, as you noted, there's still some things that inspire people to do that and send a personal note. I think just the threshold is a little bit higher. And so kind of hearing something that affects you emotionally as a listener, like that's what'll get you to write a personal note like that. And everything else will either be just like, doesn't rise to the level of sending any feedback at all, or will be like, that is like a tweet, a tweet level uh, threshold uh, or a Facebook level threshold. You talked about writing a piece about Katrina, and um, I was looking through your page on Slate, and the last thing you wrote was uh, in the summer about Serena. Um, so you're you're obviously you write occasionally. I think you focus more on on the editing side and on the podcast. I was curious, so I wanted to ask you. What inspired, like, what is it that makes you just, like, why did you decide to write about Serena? Like, it was it just that it was, like, it was, like, a, a business call? Like, hey, 
Josh write this thing on Serena or was it like you were inspired to write that because you had an opinion and it, it drove you to the keyboard or what what brings you to writing since you do it less frequently than maybe you had in 2006 or some other year? Yeah, so that's right. I do write less frequently than I used to for time reasons. I've got other stuff that I'm working on. With the Serena thing, it was a combination of those two factors that you mentioned. Um, it was on the weekend, and I was around and available, and also I did have thoughts, like everybody had thoughts on Serena's um, confrontation with the chair umpire at the U.S. Open. But I felt like I had something to say and um, that it was something that needed to be done in a timely way, just given the new cycle, and I was available. And so I wrote, um, if it had happened during the week, I don't know if the calculus would have been different if I would have been on other stuff. But also, I just like I, I do know a lot about tennis. I'm a big tennis fan. Um, and so... I was just kind of the person, if somebody was going to write about it for Slate and it seemed like somebody should, then I was going to be the person to do it. Is there a story you're dying to write? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff I want to do. Um, been thinking about doing a bigger piece on um, LSU and some of my thoughts around growing up in Louisiana and being a fan of those teams and sort of how I've thought about that in our like current political moment. Um, it's like a huge influence on my life, um, growing up there and, and following those teams. And it's something I've thought about a lot recently and I do really want to carve out the time to do that at some point soon. Um, so that's, that's a thing that's kind of been burrowing into my brain the last few months. One more thing, and then we'll finish on the saints. Uh, yes, sir. So let me, th- let me try to, let me try to, I'm almost not talented enough to ask this right, but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> I believe in you. Honorable mention. All right. <laughs> All right. So obviously, since 2016 or a little bit before that, we've seen the intersection of politics and sports increase. And it's become polarizing at times. Um, and as we sit in 2018, having just got through a midterm, there's often burnout and uh, fatigue sometimes. But and, and, and we've seen all the debates, right? Like with the NFL ratings, ESPN's ratings programming why do things go up why do they go down when is politics to blame when is politics not to blame when's the right time to push it when's not now you're in a a more unique position at slate because you know slate and politics intersect more naturally so when you're doing sports for slate i think it's more anticipated that politics will have a a bigger part of it. So the question and all that is how do you balance it? What kind of feedback do you get? And, um, as a, as a host and as a writer 
and as as a, a facilitator, what what do you want to do ideally? Like, where is you, where do you feel like the um, the threshold, if that's the right word, should lie? Like, where do you, if it was in an ideal world, where how would you facilitate it so that it was to you perfect? I know those are kind of three questions, and again, I I don't know if I if I express that correctly, but I, I did no, I my best. I got you. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is news cycle dependent, and I don't think we want to force having a conversation that doesn't seem like it's a conversation that's happening out in the world. Our show is um, trying to kind of capture what are the topics that are really animating people right now. It's not always dependent on what's going on in the world. Sometimes we like to lead the conversation rather than following it, or we just like talk about something random that nobody is talking about that just seems fun. Um, but I feel like for me, it's less about um, forcing. I don't perceive what we're doing as forcing politics where it doesn't belong. I would argue that it's more about not shying away when politics seem like they're super prevalent and important um, to what's going on in the sports world. So, um, and I feel like we've gotten some feedback via maybe a couple emails, but like iTunes ratings where people are like, uh, the show's too liberal or you talk about politics too much. And I don't really care about that. Mm -hmm. Like if, if that's alienating to a handful of people, if I'm happy with, the show, and um, I think that what we're doing is important, and we're having the conversations that uh, I want to be having, then that's cool with me. And sort of like you were getting at, it's like polarizing time. If, if people aren't pissed off at what you're talking about, then it seems like maybe you're not talking about the right things. Um, and that you are maybe shying away from the really important conversations that are going on around whether it's um, civil rights and sports or, you know, to some degree, like NCAA amateurism stuff. Like, if you're having these, like, really crucial conversations about our culture right now, I think the expectation should be that people aren't going to, your whole audience isn't going to agree with you and it's going to potentially be alienating to some folks and that seems okay. There's no, it's no secret that you, you, you lean left. Um, you know, certainly I tend to lean somewhat right. Uh, socially I'm pretty moderate and I'm not religious, but you know, I'm more of a, like a, like a classical Republican, I guess, you know, a, a New York Republican. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not a, a religious nut or a, you know, I, I don't, especially personal rights, I, I tend to be maybe a little, almost, almost left. But uh, one thing I worry about when conversations do come up is I worry about an echo chamber effect. Like, I don't want to be here um, and get caught in my own head, in my own bubble. And when something important that I think politically does come up, I love to reach out to a guy like Jeff Perlman, who I know is as far away to the left as possible from me, so that 
because I think then we have better conversations if I were, as opposed to if I were to pull someone who was closer thinking to me, I get nervous that it's just, it's, it's not going to be anything worthwhile. Do you ever worry about the echo chamber effect at all that your own personal um, political biases, of course they should exist in the conversation, but do you ever worry that they dominated too much? Do you ever look for a contrarian opinion? Do you, do you want to integrate that or um, are you just more comfortable kind of staying in your lane and, and doing it, doing it, you know, the way you do the show, just kind of under your control and, 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 you know, biases be damned. Yeah. So on our show, we tend to prioritize our own views. That's been the history of it. It's been, you know, Mike Pesca doesn't do the show with me and Stefan Fatsis anymore, but it was always kind of a round table where we would uh, share what our opinions are. And that's kind of what you're, um, what you're in for if you subscribe or if you just check it out. And so I think for me, I, I think that what you uh, expressed is, is important. And I think that we shouldn't just talk to ourselves uh, or listen to people who believe what we believe. But um, for our show, I think what I would say is my priority is honesty um, and being candid about what it is that I believe. Um, and if you're not buying what I'm selling, I'm cool with that. Um, and I think that if you're wherever you are on the ideological spectrum, I think weak argumentation is bad. And I think you would agree that, like, uh, if you're on the right, like, weak arguments from the right are not, like, helping your cause. And it's the same on the left that um, bad arguments about whatever topic, like, if you're a person who ideologically leans that way, you should push back against them and make sure that you're not making them yourself. And yeah, I think there's probably a risk if you're only talking to people who agree with you that that kind of pushback that you can get lazy about it. And so it's always a thing that I am conscious of in, in my editing um, and hopefully in my own rhetoric. So that's, I guess that, that would be the summary of how I think about it. One of the hard ones for me was Joe Mixon. Um, because when the topic came up, I think it was right before, right before the draft, maybe, or maybe even right before the bowl game. I think maybe yeah, I think they were in the sugar bowl. Yeah, I think, year. yeah. Oh, well, you, yeah. And it really kind of heated up and that's when the video came out and the video is awful. You know, it's one of those just awful things to watch. And I just remember being so conflicted about it. And uh, it was actually Dan Wetzel who was on the show that week. Um, so we did, so we talked about it. And, um, you know, at times it felt weird to be two dudes talking about it. I felt like I wish Jenny Vrentes or, you know, Jane Levy was on this week or something like that just because I thought that might have just been more interesting. But that's when it's hard for me is when it's like I don't even know sometimes what the right answers are. And, um, 
that's when I, I think it gets the most complicated. But I think you're right about just being honest is probably the best way to cover it. And then hope that people understand that you're just – that a lot of this stuff is just really complicated and uh, really hard. And uh, that's kind of why we're trying to talk it out. And uh, so this is where I'm at. But I always try to try to at least approach it as like, hey, this is where I'm at right now. But tell me where you're at and I'll move. If you're – I'm, I'm the first one to, to, to be okay with admitting I'm wrong and, and you know, and moving if I have to. So um, thanks for your, for your opinion on that. Uh, let's, yeah, well, the, yeah. the thing I would say about um, about that, just quickly, is yeah. like um, yeah. this came up recently when Derek Rose scored 50 points and the play-by-play guy for the Wolves, I don't know who it was, but listed the uh, gang rape allegations against him and just like kind of a laundry list of quote-unquote things that he's overcome. Um, just like at the end of the game and just like a really bizarre and inappropriate way. And that is an example of when, and, you know, you're asking when, when should you talk about things and when shouldn't you talk about things? I think in the context of a dude scoring 50 points uh, and you're just going to like kind of toss off a little mention at the end of the game and present it as if it was like, you know, the same as a knee injury or something, then just shut up and don't say anything unless you're, like, willing to have an actual conversation about it and take it seriously and not put it, uh, position it as, like, the most important thing about this allegation is that it's the thing that happened to Derrick Rose before he scored 50 points in a basketball game. So I think knowing when not to talk about something and knowing when to talk about something and who to have the conversation with and in what venue is super important. Totally agree. All right. I, again, I'm not talented enough to transition so smoothly out of that to the Saints. But uh, before I let you go, yeah. I wanted to do five minutes. <laughs> I wanted to do five minutes on them or so. Uh, first of all, have you recovered from whatever the hell they call it, miracle? I, I refuse to to learn if it's Minnesota or Minneapolis. I know it's probably one of the two. Have you recovered from that? And um, does the existence of that has it have you found it? Have you found that as a source of trepidation um, as you enter the all like the stage of wow, we might have the best team of the Breeze Peyton era here, or the second best, or whatever? Like, because for me, you know, even after the Rams game ended, or you know, or like when that flag when when, the, when they threw that flag on Mike Thomas, you know. Right away, my head went to, great. Next play is going to be a 60-yard touchdown to Brandon Cooks. and get the onside kick. Like, you know, just every – like, the nightmares just won't stop for me. So where are you uh, with recovering from last year, and how is it affecting your optimism or your love for the uh, 2018 version of the team? I don't want to make it out like I'm some, like, super cool guy who, like – it wasn't that big a deal to me because, like, other things in life are more important. I'm not going to say that. Obviously, that was the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world. But, like, I don't know. It was not the greatest Saints team in history. Um, they were down pretty big in that game. It was um, sort of surprising that they were even in the position to blow it. And also, just honestly, I felt so bad for Marcus Williams um, because, had such a great rookie season. Um, it was just such a bizarre 
play where he um, missed the tackle on, on Diggs. There are just all these kind of factors conspiring to make me feel less about bad about it than I would have. I get more pissed off, I think, in my fandom at really when, like, a coach does something really dumb. Like, I'm thinking of a bunch of, like, less miles examples in my head right now. <laughs> Clock management anyway, stuff. I, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. stuff where um, I, I just I just have a really hard time because the, the culprit of that was Marcus Williams. It was his fault. But, like, he was obviously trying his hardest, and I just have a really hard time um, taking it, like, super personally, like, oh, I can't, can't believe you did that to me or something. Well, he made now, an interception year, in that game, right? I mean, he, he he was part of the reason we were in a position to blow it, so. For sure. Right. And uh, he had uh, a very nice interception run back against the Bengals on Sunday. He did. Is, uh, he's well. he's rebounded. But, um, this, this year, they've got uh, a Super Bowl-caliber team. Um, it's one of the last opportunities for them to make a run, given Breeze's age and given the way that the roster is constructed. Um, and so if something similar happened in the playoffs this year where they had a really disappointing defeat, I feel like that was probably going to hit harder. Just because, I don't know, did you agree that, like, just didn't seem it, it seemed as if that lead in Minnesota was a bit fluky and that I don't know I, I just I, I guess if they had played the Eagles at that point everyone was like the Eagles are an easy out because Nick Foles is the quarterback haha so maybe this is all just like in retrospect but I just never really bought that they had a legit shot last year even as they were like one second from the championship NFC championship game yeah, I was devastated. I um, I I watched Drew Brees win that game twice, and that's the second time in his career I've watched him win a playoff game twice on the road to have the defense not be able to hold it. And um, I was devastated for Marcus. I'm not the kind of guy, you know, who was pointing fingers. I was just devastated, and I'm embarrassed at how devastated I was. You know, because I'm a 38-year-old man with a family and a daughter and a colon that hates me and, you know, a real life. And I sometimes am embarrassed at how much I love the Saints and how much they mean to me. As I sit and talk to you below a 4 by 6 fat head of Tracy Porter, Will Smith, and Scott Shanley running down the field, uh, pointing at the end zone after the uh, pick six in the Super Bowl. Uh, but... um. It was devastating for me, and it took me a, lo- a long time to think about football again. I didn't watch the Super Bowl or any other playoff games that year. Wow. Um, I just couldn't. I had to take a break. I had to step away. Um, and I feel like they would have won the Super Bowl if that didn't happen. I guess you don't think they were as good as I did, but I just don't see them losing to that Philadelphia team, and I thought they were better than the Patriots too. Uh, even though and uh, even though the Patriots had really beaten us badly, but that was almost like a different team in week two. But um, this year's team, I think, is is better, obviously, than last year's team. So, um, you know, and I think the Mark Ingram thing, like you mentioned earlier, was a blessing because it seemed like we rode Kamara hard early, then it seemed like Peyton sort of backed off him till the Rams game. 
and then really featured him in that Rams game. And then last week, I feel like we've seen Mark Ingram that we were used to last year. And now we're getting, it's almost like we're just hitting our stride despite the fact that the team has won, is it eight games in a row now? You know, so I feel like we haven't even seen the best Saints team yet. You know, it's going to be tough maybe to play a better game than they played Sunday. But I still think that the best is yet to come. I, I still think that that defense is going to get better. You know, I, I think Marcus Davenport is going to continue to surge. And that just his presence as he gets better and better, you know, is going to boost the team. And um, I'm very optimistic. But it's taken me a long time to get to that point because I was as devastated as I was last year. But Yeah, I mean, the counter-argument is that um, you just can never count on getting that far just because it's such a crapshoot. Right. And that's what I would say about this year, too, is that Teron Armstead's uh, left tackle, who's been playing at an amazing level this year, gets hurt against the Bengals. We don't know how long he's going to be out, but you argue that they're, the team is hitting its stride. Well, you know, they won't be hitting their stride if just, you know, yeah, if Mike Thomas breaks his leg. Or Cam Jordan gets hurt. Right. I mean, yeah. it's just like random, and football's a brutal game, and so you can't ever count on anything. Um, and so these and these chances with Drew Brees being uh, 82 years old, like, it's, it's a limited window. And so, yeah, each chance is more precious, certainly. But on the um, – you mentioned the Michael Thomas cell phone thing earlier, and I would – um, push back a little bit about what you said about kind of running through that catastrophic scenario and what I think this is a thing that I thought, thought about writing but did not have time but this is a, a strongly held b- a belief of mine is that on that broadcast Joe Buck and Troy Aikman especially Aikman were super negative about um, that celebration and about potentially cost the team and a 15-yard penalty and how it just wasn't smart. But what I think they really missed is that for fans like us and for New Orleanians, that moment of what he did and connecting it to the Joe Horn celebration of 2003 cemented him as a New Orleans saint for life. Oh, yeah. And it was just such a, like, it was a gesture that I think if you didn't grow up with that team in that city you just didn't understand it seems like weird to mention like that it was actually like emotionally affecting to you know and that was a ba- bad era of the saints the jim Haslett saints with joe horn but that moment was like one of the great moments in saints history it's like something that my friends and i talk about um and to see a guy from this new generation have like an appreciation and respect for the guys that came before like for us as fans like we know and love all these guys and there's not that much continuity in the nfl you know other than breeze and payton there's has been no continuity on the saints from you know 2006 when they got there right so to have the sense that a player now is like part of this lineage like even if they had lost the game I sort of had love for the guy and thought that that was awesome and a great moment in Saints history. And I would have made, probably remembered it more. Like, I don't remember anything that happened in the 2003 season except for 
Joe Horn with a cell phone. And I think that's the stuff that, um, to the extent that any of this is important, like that's, I think, as important as, uh, you know, winning that game. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I, I wasn't angry with him. I, it was more just a nervousness about losing. You know, it wasn't about, like, I wasn't, like, I wasn't on the Troy Aikman, like, what a horrible thing. Like, Joe, yeah, uh, I know. Mike Thomas even went to the bench and put the oxygen mask on like Joe Horn did after the celebration. Like, he went all out. So, I mean, I love Mike. And actually, before that play, I turned to my wife and I said, Mike Thomas needs to make a play here because it's third and seven and – you know, we're only up by three. I don't want to give the ball back. I said it. Mike Thomas needs to make a play here. And sure enough, he did. So, um, listen, I kept you long enough. Um, Ten minutes more than I asked for. Really enjoyed talking to you. Um, Josh is on Twitter. Uh, he's at Josh underscore L-E-V-I-N. Hang up and listen. Podcasts come out every Monday. Um, and uh, it's a great listen. This week's most recent show uh, covers the... Um, Oh, what the heck did it cover? I was just listening to it before I called you. Uh, Duke, Duke, the Duke, yeah, the Duke boys, the the big three at Duke, um, and the baseball. Bill James saying that all the baseball players are replaceable, um, and also of course Slate dot com. Uh, you can go and visit that website for some some writing from Josh occasionally, and of course his uh, his fine editing skills uh, are on display daily there. Uh, anything else you want to plug or, or say before? We go, and then I need you to give me your your crystal ball prediction of how the Saints' season ends. That was a more plugs than I could possibly have hoped for or expected. So I'm I'm pleased with the uh, the state of the plugging. So okay, thank you for that. Good. As far as the uh, Saints' season, I think they'll be the number two seed, and I think they will play the Rams in the NFC title game, and uh, it will be, let's say, 51 to 48, and uh, Mike Thomas will celebrate the the victory in some sort of cell phone-related fashion. (laughs) All right, I'll take it. Thank you, Josh. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. I want to thank Josh Levine and Jane Levy for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this podcast and all episodes of the Sportscasters dating back to 2011 on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever podcasts are caught. If for some reason your podcast catcher isn't catching the Sportscasters, please email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. And uh, I will do my best to rectify that problem so you can listen to the show uh, where you most comfortably listen to podcasts. Uh, Also, don't forget to check out the Lonely End of the Rink podcast, episode number 26, which was released just before this podcast on the Sportscasters podcast feed. Uh, Adrian Dater and I talk about the National Hockey League. You can get more information about that show at Lonely Rink Pod on Twitter or, of course, on my Twitter at sports underscore casters and follow our good friend Adrian Dater at Adater on Twitter. 
Uh, also, Greetings from Allentown came out uh, on Thursday again. Uh, Peter Winson at GF Allentown Pod uh, put out an episode about continental rush, uh, wrestling, the Memphis Territory. Uh, and Peter and I are going to be working on our Adams Division podcast, uh, which is the Survivor Series 87 to 98 ranked. And that will be out soon. Make sure you follow us both on Twitter at sports underscore casters or at GF Allentown Pod for information about that. And make sure you check out Peter Winston's show uh, weekly uh, on uh, on Greetings from Allentown. Like I said this week, he did a uh, an episode on Memphis, Continental Wrestling. And I like when he does the random promotions because I usually don't know much about him. And uh, he schools me for an hour and a half. Uh, and I love it. So that's all that. Uh, hopefully next week's podcast will go up before Thanksgiving. And hopefully it should, well, it will definitely include an interview with Brian Curtis from Ringer because I already recorded that one. And uh, I'm scheduled to record on Monday with John Feinstein. Uh, hopefully that happens. All right, with all that said, one last thing. I went to the Sabres game the other night. And uh, the Sabres were playing the Tampa Bay Lightning, and I had plans for a while. Uh, I used to have season tickets, the full season. Uh, now I have more of a split um, season. Uh, but when I had my full season tickets behind us uh, was a family of four uh, that I got to meet. Uh, and uh, Rob, Vale were the, the parents. They're both lawyers in the, the GTA area, Oakville, officially. Uh, Rob and Val would bring their kids, Sawyer, uh, their son Sawyer, and their daughter, Sedona, to the games. And we got to know them over the years, and Rob and Val came to our wedding. And, uh, you know, we've watched their family grow. You know, Sawyer, who was the youngest when we sat together, is now in college. Uh, and he goes to university in Nova Scotia, which is somehow 18-hour car ride away from his house in Oakville. Uh, and... Um, uh, we made plans, uh, Rob and I, to meet at the Tampa Tampa game. And uh, then it turned out Sawyer was home from school, so he was able to go. And uh, I want to thank Rob on this podcast for, for buying me a ticket. Uh, he, he, didn't, he wouldn't take any money for the ticket, and I appreciate that. And uh, we were right behind the net where the Sabres shoot twice. And uh, it was an interesting game because the first period, the Sabres came out and really played fantastic. Got a one nothing lead, kind of made a statement, and there was some buzz in the building. And then they got run off the ice in the second period, but were able to get a goal and only concede one. So they had this 2-1 lead going into the third. And, man, it was so awesome the third period. I haven't had a Sabres game like that in so long where I just cared so much. I wanted to win so badly. And the arena was buzzing. The last the Sabres cleared the puck with about 30 seconds left for an icing, and Tampa called their timeout. And at the end of the timeout, the whole arena was standing. And cheering on the Sabres, trying to hold on, and they did, and they won the game. It was so great. Uh, it was such a great night, you know. It was so, it was so great to uh, to be able to be there with Sawyer and Rob, and my brothers were there as well, and my city, the people of Buffalo, getting behind this team. You know, it's still only about fifteen, I think fifteen thousand eight hundred. They announced, uh, so there's still it's you can still get in that place cheap. Uh, but I think by Christmas time, you know, in 2005, the lockout, uh, you know, resulted in some small crowds initially. But that Sabres team was so good, and, and it built and built and built. And by, you know, the end of the next season, there's a waiting list for season tickets. 
I don't know if that's going to happen ever again, but you can feel the momentum in the city. The TV ratings have been huge. You can feel the momentum in the city, but I just wanted to bring it up because I wanted to thank Sawyer and Rob and the Wise family. I wanted to do that first. I wanted to thank them. So that's a big reason I wanted to bring it up. And I just wanted to... Oh, and Sawyer, by the way, nobody knows more about hockey in the world, I don't think, than this kid. Genius. Just a hockey genius. He's going to be a GM of a hockey team someday. I know it. Uh, but I wanted to thank him and his father, Rob. Rob's such a great guy. Uh, and I'm still waiting for an invitation to the cottage. Uh, but hopefully we're going to go to another hockey game soon. So I wanted to thank them. And, you know, it's just fun. It's fun caring about the Sabres like this again. It's been so long. And I'm going to cut this in a minute because I want to go watch them play. They're playing Winnipeg right now. And I'm doing a podcast. And I want to go watch them. So I'm going to cut this in a second. But thanks to Rob. Thanks to Sawyer. Love you, boys. Go Sabres! Be mine.